Well, among all the Easter stories that we get to hear in Scripture, none is more beloved than this Road to Emmaus story. Um, People love this story. I think possibly because of the fact that one of the two characters in the story uh, never gets named. And so there's a sense in which we can all see ourselves as that nameless disciple that Jesus blesses and comes to in his risen form. A couple of years ago, my daughter Charlie asked me to preach at her, her marriage to her husband Andy. And before she uh, sent me off on my task, she said, But Dad, I don't want you to preach anything that I've ever heard you preach at any other wedding. That's the kind of demands that a daughter will put on you. And, uh, and so, of course, being my daughter, I, I did my best. And the Lord brought me actually to this Road to Emmaus passage. And part of the reason was because we don't exactly know who these two disciples are. Are they two friends? Are they father and son? Uh, are they just acquaintances? Or are they husband and wife? And some speculate that, in fact, Cleopas and his wife Mary were uh, actually an aunt and uncle of Jesus, believe it or not. So we don't really know. But for the purpose of that wedding, I, I postulated that they were married and this was a married couple. But for us today, I, I want us to hear that Jesus comes to these, these ordinary, if you will, minor character disciples and makes himself known to them. Now, I love to walk, and uh, I love particularly to walk in the woods, and hiking trips are a big part of my life, uh, the annual rituals of my life. And uh, my brother often criticizes me because I am, and jokingly, because I am prone to inquire with everybody that we cross paths with on our walks, uh, you know, information, how far to the next stop, where are we, did you see water ahead, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so Jesus, in a, in a sort of a light manner, which I think is really just lighthearted, Jesus comes along to this couple and he begins to talk to them. He begins to, to ask them questions. And really what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to discern where their hearts are. And their hearts are full of disappointment. And fear. I mean, I think we underestimate how important it would be if you were a follower of Jesus and you had just seen the authorities kill him, you would probably believe that perhaps your life was in danger as well. Fill of disappointments, fill of fears, not sure what to do. They are heading home to Emmaus to to be uh, with with their family or back to their hometown seven miles away. But they're also contemplating this weird story that the women have told, that they went to the tomb and it was empty. And then Simon and some others went to the tomb and it was also empty. And, and so now there's postulation that, that perhaps could it be that, that Jesus, in fact, has been raised from the dead. But it's more sadness as you hear the tune. They're, they're definitely headed for negative town as Jesus approaches them and enters into this conversation with them. Um, they, they are met with Jesus. They're met by him. He comes to them. He wants to walk along with them. He seeks them out. How he found them, how, I mean, you know, he's Jesus, but he, you know, he comes right to them and joins in their conversation. Just, just think about that for a second, that Christ seeks us out. He knows where we are in our homes or um, as we're out and about. Well, secondly, 
I want you to notice that after having heard the story and asked the questions, and, and can you imagine Jesus getting to hear from another perspective about the Easter story? I mean, here he is hearing it from this, 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 these other characters, these other people in the story. He's hearing about what's going on and, and how they've been affected. So Jesus finally has to interrupt. And it's sort of a rebuke. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read all the Easter stories, there's a, there's a bit of a rebuke. Oh, you foolish ones, is what he says here. Uh, because they, he realizes that they've, they've overlooked completely all the scriptures, all the, the signs, all the times that Jesus himself told them that he had to be crucified and that he would be, that he'd be killed and that on the third day he would rise again. And yet they, they weren't able to hear it. And they weren't able to hear the words of the prophets. They weren't attuned to what... Jesus was trying to communicate to them. So then he begins to teach them. He begins to say to them all the things that the scriptures spoke about him. Now, can you imagine being in a Bible study where Jesus explains the Old Testament? Where he shows you every place where he is the focus. He takes them to Genesis 22 and talks about, uh, talks about Abram taking his son, or Abraham by that time, taking his son Isaac and being willing to offer him on the altar. He talks about King David, the suffering king, and, and all the psalms he wrote, talking about not letting his holy one see corruption. David prophesying about the future Messiah, the, the Messiah of all Messiahs. And, and on and on, Jesus begins to unfold the Old Testament. I mean, wow, what a Bible study to be a part of. Jesus begins to... to to give them all this insight. He brings them back to Scripture. And I, I want to make a clear point of this because I think it's important um, that our faith is not based around subjective experiences. We have subjective experiences. Those are important. But the ground, the foundation of our faith is, is on the witnesses who saw Jesus and on the, the firm message of the Scriptures. What the Old and now the New Testament speak about Jesus and, and how they laid the groundwork there. Paul makes a, a pointed way of saying this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just a little plug for my Wednesday night class. Uh, Paul says, and this is the gospel that you believed, that Christ died according to the scriptures, and that he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to 500 and so on. According to the scriptures, the signs were there. Everything that God is doing, he forecasts through his prophets. We are encouraged to dig into the scriptures and to see the roots of our faith and how God had been laying down. This was not plan B for the Lord. This was always in the mind of God to bring about salvation through the death of the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the incarnate Son of God. C.S. Lewis commenting in uh, one of his articles says, uh, perhaps it's just so uh, on the nose that we don't recognize it, that something has to die and go into the ground, just like a seed. Anything that's planted has to go into the ground before it springs up to new life. Maybe because it's such a common part of our world, we miss that it was the very fabric of God's plan to allow Jesus' um, glory to come through his crucifixion and death, and then his glorious resurrection. Well, the next thing in the story picks up with uh, Jesus um, pretending uh, to go on. And I don't, I don't think he's trying to deceive them. I, I, think he's, I think that there is something about the glorified Jesus. As we said last week, 
Um, the, the glorified Jesus, he still has a body, but yet he's different. And so they're not readily recognizing him. And he is waiting to see if they will invite him to come in. Do you notice that? He, he, he acts as if he's going to go on. And I believe that Jesus would have gone on if these disciples had said, well, we got enough. Thank you for the Bible study, uh, dear stranger, and we're going to move forward. But instead, they call him to enter their home, to come and be with them, to come and share table fellowship. In other words, to share a meal and to spend the night. After all, it's late at night, and it's not a good idea to be out roaming by yourself after dark. Jesus, because they invited him, comes in and he is with them. And again, I think this is an important word for us in this season. We cannot miss Jesus in this season. If we spend six, eight, twelve, however many weeks we spend in quarantine, and we don't invite the Lord Jesus into this quarantine with us, if we don't see the opportunity we have to share and fellowship with him, Oh, we'll be all the poorer for it. Jesus does come. He begins to be with these two, whoever they are, husband and wife, friends, father, son, whoever they are, you and I, he invites us to come and be with him. And he begins to, 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 um, to speak to them in ways that um, we don't know. There's no record, record of what exactly he says in that time, but you know, it reminds me, you know, in this season, I, I want to be open to the Lord. Um, if there's anything we have, it's more time to examine our reactions, examine our responses to other people, the, the people we're closest to, the people that we're quarantined with. And let's be honest, they can get on our nerves and we can get on their nerves. But in this time when we've been given the gift of time, what a, what a joy to be able to say to the Lord, Lord, what, what's up with my reaction? Why am I so upset by that? And to begin to allow the Lord to speak into those places of woundedness and brokenness in our lives and insecurities and where we become overly emotional in response. To allow the Lord to be in this quarantine with us and to show us the things that he wants to. I believe that's what we're hearing in First Peter as, as the apostle uh, reminds us that in view of who Christ is and what he has come, how he's redeemed us to unperishable uh, to, a, to an imperishable body and to a, a hope in a future that we're to, we're to live lives that seek to be holy as God is holy. That's what Peter is saying in First Peter that you heard read a few minutes ago. Well, it's at this point that in the story that Jesus finally tells the disciples who he is. He doesn't do it by saying, hey, I'm Jesus. He does it simply by, uh, by lifting up the bread and by saying a prayer of blessing over it and breaking it and then giving it to them. Now, we don't know. It's not written in the scripture, but you might speculate that if I was to raise my hands, you would all of a sudden see my wrist in a way that perhaps you hadn't seen him in the past. We know that Christ was nailed to the cross through those wrists. The hand would have, the tendons of the hand would not have held the cross, but the, but the wrist would. And so when Jesus brings the bread up to bless it, Baruch Adonai, Elohim, uh, his wrists would have been exposed. And perhaps at that moment is when the disciples realize, by seeing the scars, that this is their Lord and Savior. He is known to them in this subjective experience, and they are overwhelmed with him. But notice that Jesus, Jesus immediately vanishes from them. 
part of the glorification of his body is that he's able to walk through locked doors and appear and move around and, and still has the body, still bears the scars, but yet is no longer entrapped by some of the laws of gravity and physics that we have to deal with. Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He'll, he'll be there when these two disciples get there, but they're not quite there yet. They, they have another conversation, and this conversation is very different. It's about how wasn't when our hearts warmed as we as we heard him speak about the scriptures. Now I love this because as you know in Anglicanism we we have high church and we have low church. And the high church people love the fact that Jesus was revealed in the breaking of the bread. I don't think he was actually doing the Lord's supper here, but he was known in the breaking of the bread. So you got the high church, but then also their hearts are strangely warmed as to quote John Wesley. Um, as they think about how the scriptures were opened and revealed to them. I love the way Jesus brings us all together here, right? High church, low church, in the breaking of the bread, in the, in the opening of the scriptures, we encounter the person of Christ. Now, it's late. Dangerous to go back to Jerusalem. They leave immediately. Now, the average hiker can move about two miles in an hour so this is if they're moving at an average hiker speed three and a half hour journey in the evening after dark they're unencumbered they rush back to tell the disciples what they have seen overwhelmed with joy 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 tears of joy jesus christ as blaise pascal recounts his own conversion to Christ in the 1600s. He says, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ. He says that he felt like he was on fire. John Wesley says his heart was strangely warmed as he realized that of course, of course God would redeem us through allowing the person of Jesus to be crucified, died, buried, but then raised on the third day. So that our sins could be forgiven. So that our sin could be atoned for. And yet to bring him back from the dead. That he would vanquish the final enemy of God, which is death. Death will not have the final answer. Which is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the resurrection of the body is so important. Because God will raise all of us up to be like Christ who is risen from the dead. Well, how do I wrap this up? Well, perhaps you are stuck at home. Um, I heard a quote this week from Blaise Pascal that I mentioned earlier. He was a famous scientist, physicist, mathematician. In some ways, probably the father of the scientific method, or at least uh, advocated for the scientific method. And, and um, is credited with, with what now we think of as computer science because of his work in mathematics. Blaise Pascal was also a committed Christian. Pascal said that most of the world's problems are caused by the fact that men and women will not sit quietly in their room by themselves and contemplate the deep questions of life. Let me say that one more time. Most of the world's problems are caused by the fact that men and women will not sit alone in their room by themselves and contemplate the great questions of life. Friends, we were given an opportunity to sit alone. <laughs> to invite Jesus into that place with us. To seek the scriptures, to know them, 
better. To find a way to, to understand more of the mysteries of God that have been revealed in his scriptures. They're not really mysteries because they're right there on the pages of the Old Testament and in the New. This is such a time. Whether we're out walking or whether we're in our houses, Jesus comes to us. We're all, we were all on a road to Emmaus, whatever that looked like for us, going about our lives, back to normal. And that's all been interrupted. But Jesus comes to us. And he wants to be with us. Let me encourage you. Don't let this season of virus pass by. And you not experience Jesus. Who is waiting to be invited. To come and dwell with you. Find fellowship. Maybe not with humans at this point. Since you have to be quarantined. But find fellowship in the great writers. And thinkers of the church. Pick up uh, Blaise Pascal's work. Pick up C.S. Lewis's work. Dallas Willard. Find someone to be your uh, mentor, your discipler in this process. Pick up the word of God and find Jesus, the risen Lord, who longs to stay the night with you and make himself known in the scriptures and in the experience of his presence. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.